You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 28. Entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and sidetrepreneurs. This episode of the podcast is for you. I love those last two terms, entrepreneur and sidetrepreneur. A entrepreneur is someone who dreams of creating their own business. They see others do it and they think, I want to do that for my life too. I want to create a business where I get to flex my strengths, to really enjoy what I do in a way that offers the most value to create a lifestyle where my work, family, and hobbies exist in balance and harmony. And of course, a sidepreneur is someone who may have a job, but on the side they're building something, selling products, offering services, or simply planting seeds that they hope will one day germinate and be ready for harvest. And we already know what an entrepreneur is, or do we? My guest in today's episode is Jim Palmer. Among many other things, Jim tells us about the difference between an entrepreneur and someone who operates a small business. In some ways, the difference is subtle. It's about mindset, but it's a subtlety that reaps enormously different results. Jim has written six books, and much of our conversation today leans on the wisdom he shares in his most recent, Decide, the Ultimate Success Trigger. As Jim built his impressive collection of booming businesses, he worked out that the difference between successful entrepreneurs and the rest, the 80% who fail within the first five years, is the ability to make decisions. And in the chat you're about to hear, Jim talks us through his own career and the experiences he had that helped him arrive at that very clear and tangible message. The quality of our choices shapes the quality of our results. And if you stick around to the end of our conversation, Jim makes a very generous offer to listeners of the Team Guru podcast. Hint, it's a free book. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jim Palmer. Palmer, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. David, thanks for having me, man. We're connecting across the pond quite a ways. We are connecting across the pond. And as we discussed before I pressed record, we're trying out some new technology today from Zencaster. So hopefully, even though we're doing this episode over Skype, I'm pretty sure we'll end up with a really good recording, Jim. So I'm excited about trialing this with you. But I'll tell you what, Jim, I sat down to read your book yesterday, Decide. I think it's your most recent book. It is my sixth book, yes. Is it your sixth book? I knew it was the last in a long line. And the truth of the matter is I planned on skimming it, reading the title chapters and maybe some of the summary, but I ended up reading almost the entire thing. It was a really great read, mate. And and as you know, because you've told me you've had this feedback before, I felt like you wrote it for me. I felt like it was almost a personal email, a bit of a coaching session. 
<laughs> well, it's quite a compliment to the writing style, which I try to write conversationally, David. But, you know, when I started doing three years ago, I started doing my own live events. And what I try and do, I, I've attended so many seminars and live events myself. I wanted to do something a little bit different where instead of every hour on the hour, you put up a speaker, he shares his rags to riches story and, and sells his $2,000 product, how you can have it too, right? So I thought, <laughs> now I'm not going to do that. I want this to be all about my story, how I got where I was, the struggles I went through, the, the crap and head trash that I overcame in my own business. And I'm going to get completely transparent. And the first time I did that, I, I remember, David, I was sharing a story about how much debt I accumulated starting my business at one point, topping almost 140000 in credit card debt. And I actually looked out and I saw three or four grown-up people with tears in their eyes. And what happened after we took a break, they came up to me privately, kind of, you know, did the look left, looked right to make sure nobody was looking and said, Jim, thank you for sharing that. They said, I'm right there now. So I think what you just shared gave me the courage to keep on keeping on. And every one of them, David, said, you need to tell this story to a bigger audience. There's too much of, here's the good stuff. People need to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so when I started writing Decide, I knew it was, I mean, technically, if you had to classify it, it would be a mindset book. But there's so many people that write books about mindset, and you've probably seen them. They got a picture of the brain on the cover with all kind of synapses firing. And I'm not, I'm not a you know, psychologist or anything. But as far as mindset, I wanted to share the things that I have identified in myself and for having been a business coach for seven years, I identified the things that were holding entrepreneurs back from achieving higher levels of success. And David, guess what? Almost all of them are self-inflicted wounds or self, you know, self-inflicted limitations. And so I shared all the stuff that was holding me back. I shared in some detail how I got over them. And then I shared also how I've helped other people. So hopefully to inspire other people to get out of their own way. And that is the message of the book. And, and I love the title. It's very simple. And after six books, you've decided that the ability to make decisions is, is one of the core components to be successful in business. Well, you know, I've not only worked with, and, but I've studied highly successful entrepreneurs and they all seem to have an, an uncanny ability to spot opportunity or assess a situation, look at a challenge, and they quickly deliberate like the yes or no's, pros or cons, whatever. And then they make a decision and David, they keep moving forward. Now, what I think you're, if I could call it a decision-making muscle, is just like any other muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Now, some people could say, well, that's your gut, your intuition, that's spirit, whatever you want to call it. But the more decisions you make, you actually do get more comfortable just being very quick and deliberate about it. Because here's what I know. Fast growing businesses, they thrive on momentum, right? And so just the ability to make quick decisions and move forward, that feeds momentum, that feeds speed. The opposite of that is indecision and indecision. So I'm a boater, David, so I use nautical language. It's like throwing an anchor over the back of your boat or the stern, actually. And trying to get up on plane, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, that's right. And you do such a great job of convincing your readers in the book of that. And, and I want to talk more about the decision-making process and the, the ills of not making a decision and, and Squishyville, as you talk about in your book, because it's all really interesting stuff. But I find your story really interesting too. So let's talk about you for a little while, Jim. You're very open in your book. 
You talk about the fact that it's not going to be a soft, gentle book. You give your readers that warning at the beginning, and and you're right. It's not a soft, gentle book. You do, Mm -hmm. in some ways, hit them between the eyes. And these are lessons that you've learned as well. You you say you talked about it before as a cliche, the rags to riches, but in your case, I don't find it cliche. I, I found it very convincing when it was blended with the advice you were giving. So just give us a little bit of background of your story. So... I was married at 21 and we had our first of four children at 23. I think we, I think it was by 28, we had four kids and I was determined that my career was going to be able to support the family for the most part. And I had a goal, just kind of a personal goal. I wanted to be a VP by the time I was 40. Well, I made that, but on my, just shortly after my 41st birthday, I was director of marketing for this training company and my position was eliminated, which meant I was now out of work for the first time since I was 15 years old. I did not have a job. But I, I tell people in the book, or I, I think so, I tell my story so many times, it's hard to remember if it's in the book or not, but I say, you know what? I was really very full of confidence and vibrato. I had a very healthy ego at the time. I'd really accomplished quite a lot in my career. And I thought, you know what? No big deal. I'll be fielding multiple lucrative job offers in a matter of weeks, maybe a month at the outside. Well, that turned into 15 months of unemployment. And you know, when, when you've got six people in a family and a mortgage and things like that, Whatever savings you might have, which to be honest was not a lot, that goes away very quickly. And, you know, my wife and I, we're determined to keep our insurances paid. And, you know, four teenagers like something called food. So, you know, the food budget was never, that just couldn't go away. And, um, you know, my wife Stephanie went back to work, but a year into my unemployment, I was also diagnosed with cancer. So, I mean, I was like a double whammy. And I look, you know, with hindsight now, actually 15 years in the rearview mirror, David, I look back on that whole period and I I refer to it as my season of crises because honestly, it brought me to my knees. I mean, my confidence was gone. I I had no self-esteem. I was just, you know, for for several months I was fighting, gosh, I I just want to live, you know, and, and just keep moving forward. So in October 2001, you know, they say sometimes you get to a place and the only place you can look is up and I figured, you know, I'm going to start a business. And I started my first business in 2001. And I'll give you the kind of the short version here. But by 2005, so four to five years into my business, it was doing multiple six figures. And we were starting to earn some money and, and start paying down our debt. But I realized at that point that I had grown a job. I, I was the president, founder, whatever you want to call it, CEO of my own corporation, David. But I was the sole employee. I was doing everything. Chief cook and bottle washer is the old expression. And one day, uh, my wife, Stephanie, says, when are we going to go on vacation? It's been like way before you got laid off that we haven't been on a good vacation. And, you know, I thought, well, we could go on some vacation. I thought we could scrape some money together or whatever. But the next thought I had really shook me to my core, David, because I, I was thinking, well, who's going to run my business? You know, at the time, I was, I was writing and designing newsletters, overseeing the printing and mailing, meeting with clients, answering the phone. I mean, if it had to be done, I was doing it. And I thought, if I go away for a week, what happens? And that really, that really shook me. And I said, you know, it's one thing to create a business where you can start earning a living and, you know, making some money. But the other part of the freedom that people want when they start a business, besides financial freedom, is time freedom. And so what I decided to do is, well, I've been through it once before, I'll reinvent myself again. And I really started studying up on internet marketing and, and leverage direct response marketing. I created my second business, which was called No Hassle Newsletters. You know, a few years later, I had over 200 clients all over the country in nine different countries, actually. 
And that was the start. And, and, you know, today I have probably four or five different internet businesses, plus my coaching program and live events. It's a really clear differentiation you make in your book between the entrepreneur and the small business owner. It wasn't, it was the first time I'd really read it delineated so clearly. It was, it was quite a powerful thing to read actually. You know, some people, well, I use it in all my language. I say entrepreneur and small, and some, somebody actually asked me once, well, you always say, and so is an entrepreneur, not a small business owner and vice versa. I said, well, they can be, Yeah, you can own a small business and be an entrepreneur. And they said, well, how do you define it? And I said, well, it's really one of mindset. So a small business owner, let's say, let's just use like a brick and mortar store. Like you sell jewelry, you got a 1500 square foot jewelry store in in a shopping center. And you grow your business and let's say oh, 10 years later, you're doing a million dollars. And the only way to do any more money because you run out of space, you can't fit another glass jewelry case in there. You can't jam any more jewelry in the cases you have. You can't be open any more hours. You're starting to max out. A small business owner, if you want to keep growing, David, the first thing you think of is I have to expand because I have to sell more jewelry. Yeah. In other words, it's always selling more of whatever you sell. Jewelry, you know, hardware, whatever it is. But an entrepreneur thinks more about how else can I make money? How can I bring in revenue from different sources? So if I was to, let's say I was working with a jewelry store owner. He says, Jim, I'm doing a million dollars. I can't do any more. I, I need to open. I said, well, if you want to open additional locations and deal with more rent and more employee and turnover and theft, you can do that. But I, first thing I would ask that jewelry store owner is, what's the average jewelry store, independent jewelry store doing in the country? My guess is he'd probably say half a million dollars. I said, well, you're doing a million. He says, we do a lot of things right. I would say that I want you to write a book, start a coaching program, and start mentoring other jewelry store owners. How I doubled the average sales per square foot, and here's how you can do it too. So he could continue to run his business. He might start a mastermind or a coaching program. Like I say, he could go out and give presentations, become an author. In other words, he takes his expertise and he thinks about other ways to bring in revenue to create wealth and security for his family in addition to selling more of his core product. And that's the difference between an entrepreneur and a small business owner. So a a small business owner just looks to expand on the things that they're already doing at best. I mean, that's that's an optimistic and ambitious small business owner, isn't it? One that wants to expand. A lot of small business owners would be happy just to be running that one jewelry store, which is doing really well. Whereas the entrepreneur looks for lots of different avenues, lots of different revenue streams that they can use their skill set to flex outside of what they're already doing. That's true. And again, it is a different mindset. So when I started my first business, I had a, I was a small business owner, right? And then the more I studied and started learning from some really smart people, I learned about leverage and, well, how do I leverage my time so I don't have to do all the work? Can I hire writers and designers and other people that would do what I would consider task-oriented work? And I focus on what I call high revenue generating activity, which would be marketing and start writing, start speaking and doing different things. And lo and behold, so I then start after No Hassle Newsletters, I started a printing company. Then I started a company called No Hassle Social Media. We, we provide social media content. We'd started designing infograms, kind of thing you, you see on Twitter and thing, I call it eye candy. <laughs> and then I started writing and speaking and I started doing training programs I got one called How to Sell from the Stage, How to Double Your Retention. So I, now I got home study courses. And then this always happens typically when you start creating multiple businesses. 
some of your peers and some of the people that you hang out with or that watch you or see you, they start saying, how are you doing that? And can you teach me how? And that's a sign that hmm, maybe I should start a coaching program or a mentoring program. You know what I mean? And it's, and it's all different ways that you're going to create wealth. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. Your book very much talks directly to entrepreneurs. They're the the people that you work with the most. And I know that there's been a lot of resonation with those groups of people who see themselves as entrepreneurs. And in fact, one of your chapters is convincing people to see themselves as entrepreneurs. But as I was reading your book, I couldn't help but think that so many of your messages would resonate with not just entrepreneurs, but people who work in large organizations too, who just want to get ahead, who want to raise their profile and maybe get that next promotion or just find themselves in a position where they're doing the type of work that they really want to do. A lot of your advice is applicable in, in a lot of different areas, isn't it? It is. But you know what? There is a distinction between an employee. I think you're right. A lot of what I say, for instance, there's a chapter on decide not to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And that's a way to get more done. And when you get more done, you'll move forward. But I had a very good friend of mine who was a partner in a business and he, he used the word partner. But in reality, he he didn't have any ownership in the business. He just had a partner who treated him like a partner, et cetera. And he said, Jim, should I do this, that, and the other thing? I said, well, I think you should, but you have to clear that with your partner. He said, yeah, but... And I said, listen, I'm going to say something that's probably going to sound very, very harsh, but the difference between an entrepreneur and someone who's a partner or an employee is you have the ultimate decision-making authority. Let's say before I lost my job, I was VP of marketing and I thought, man, I'm going to do something you know, that's going to be really good for the business. But the owner has the full say on whether I can do it. So even if I thought, man, this would be really good, I think the owner has the decision, right? So I appreciate what you say that some of this could help you as an employee, but in the end, it's not about ideas. It's not about strategy per se. It's about implementation. And unless your name's on the door (laughs) or your name's on the building, you're going to have limitations as to how much you can implement. So what was it, Jim, that landed you at the word decide after six books and a a career building businesses and and being really successful at doing that. How have you distilled all this down to that that one big important word? How did you arrive there? So it was about three years ago, David. And, you know, I started doing a lot of interviews like I'm doing with you. It's a great way to get in front of a, you know, an audience and teach and give back and share. And you know, there's so, I mean, podcasting is just exploding. I'm probably thousands a day. I don't know the exact number, but you know, it never fails that one of the podcast hosts would always ask the, what's the one thing type of question? Yeah. What's the one thing this, what's the one thing? And I thought, oh, here we go. And he says, what's the one word that would most define or separate highly successful people like yourself compared to, you know, the millions of other small business owners? And I had to think about it for a second, but then I I said, decide. And he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, you know, basically what I said at the beginning, highly successful entrepreneurs have the ability to quickly decide and you move forward, build momentum, growing business, love speed. And I said, the opposite of that is indecision. So there are people that just get racked with paralysis by analysis. So let's say, David, you and I had known each other and I called you up and said, um, hey, what about this? We should do this together. It's a great opportunity, blah, blah, blah. And I describe it. It looks like it could be good for both of us. 
And instead of moving forward, you would say, well, let me think about it, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity. And then you think about it. And then you run it by some people you trust, maybe a a group, maybe a coach, maybe a master, maybe your family, who knows? All the expressions, I'm going to run it up the flagpole. I'm going to throw the spaghetti against the wall and see if it sticks. Whatever that looks like, it's not deciding, right? And so indecision leads to a place that I've called Squishyville. And Squishyville is where opportunity goes to die. Now, I've heard some very successful people. Today, business grows at a rapid rate when you think of technology. You think of companies like Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook that didn't even exist, right, 10 or 15 years ago. And so if somebody thought, oh, I'm going to, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk's a, a big guy in the social media world. And he always talks about when he had the opportunity to invest in different things, whether it be Uber or Snapchat or something like that. And he passed and then it turns out to be a home run. Now, Not every decision you make is a good one, but if you're racked with indecision, you're going to be missing a lot more opportunities than you're going to take part in. Now, people ask me, well, what happens if you make a decision that doesn't doesn't work out? First of all, if you've got a growing, thriving business, you can absorb an occasional body blow. So let's say you make a decision it turns out not to be good. Well, you either course correct, change it, alter it, and keep moving forward. Or if it's a complete disaster, you cut and run, just cut that rope, and and you keep moving forward. And that, that indecision, and I love your, your description of Squishyville, and a lot of that resonates with all of us, I'm sure, that little town you live in when you're not willing to make a decision. That decision is relevant to even the beginning, isn't it? To just, just to getting started in pursuing your dream career or your dream job. I don't want to assume that everyone working in a, sm- in, in a large organization actually dreams of working for themselves and creating their own little empire, because that's not true. But we know that there are a lot of people working for someone else who would rather be doing their own thing, creating their own little piece of paradise where they do the type of work that really makes them happy. Your question about deciding begins right back there, doesn't it? At the very decision to take that step and and make it happen. It really does. And in full disclosure, because I'm a completely transparent person, I, you know, 15 years ago when I started, I could not speak as hopefully eloquently as I am now. And, you know, because I had that small business mentality between 2005 or 2006 and today, I've spent probably $100,000 or more on coaches and training and bettering myself and learning from really, really successful people. So, you know, I look at it as I don't spend money, I invest money to better myself. And so that's where I learned a lot of this stuff. I mean, I didn't, I didn't invent it. I sometimes come up with phrases like squishyville and, and things like that, but Basically, what I'm doing, you know, it, and here's something I'll own. When I started my business, so in two, October 2000, I probably spent three weeks coming up with a name and a logo. And I'll tell you this if you don't make a sale, if you don't generate cash flow, you could have the best logo website, you could have the nicest office chair in the world, but if you don't have sales, you don't have a business. So I would tell, you know, I work with occasionally with some new entrepreneurs now. I say, let's find the fastest way to the cash. How can we get cash flow in the door? And well, well, I haven't got a business card yet. Well, you know, we can do a business card in 24 hours. You know what I mean? So it is all about speed. You affectionately refer to your first year in business as your revenue-free year, don't you? (laughs) I do. And I I love that. And, And I love the way you look back at that and think, I could have chickened out at month 10, or I could have chickened out at month 11 and gone and done something else, maybe tried to get a job. But I stuck it out. And in month 12, my first customer arrived because I spent those first 12 months sowing the seeds. And and finally, the customer arrived and they were quite a good customer. And then you really got on a roll, didn't you? It, 
you talk about deciding, I can't remember the exact language you use, but deciding to stick with it, deciding to persist. Decide to survive is one of the first decisions new entrepreneurs have to make. There's a really good book called Three Feet from Gold, and I hate to slow down any book sales for Greg Reed, but here's the, here, I'll give you the synopsis. Imagine, picture this, you, you see a miner, and if you could use your x-ray vision, you're looking through the side of the earth, and he's got the pickaxe, and he's digging sideways, like horizontally, and you can see he's, he's been digging for a year, and you can see there's about a three-foot span between where he is and a gold mine, mm-hmm. but he gives up after a year. And he comes out of the mine and he sells the pickaxes, shoveling everything to the first person he sees for 50 bucks. And he walks into town and gets hammered with the $50. And that other guy goes in and he digs three more feet and he hits gold. Yeah. I kept remembering that, number one. Number two, I knew, I really felt with every fiber of my being that I was supposed to be an entrepreneur and I knew I'd be successful. And so every month and week and day that went by, I don't get me wrong, I had some moments like, what the hell? You know, what is going on? But I'll tell you, in addition to the worry, I kept telling myself, first of all, who told me it was going to be easy? I mean, I know that many, many people dream of starting a business and some people do, but most people quit. I mean, 80% of businesses fail in the first five years because they give up too soon. So I didn't want to be that person. And during that whole year, I was doing everything I knew how to do, David. I was cold calling, knocking on doors, going to chamber of commerce meetings, doing everything, calling my old network, every single thing I could do every day to get myself closer to my first client. So if when I look back on it as unpleasant and, you know, nail biting as of an experience as it was, I was planting seeds that would, you know, if you want to have a big harvest, you got to plant a lot of seeds. I planted like Johnny Appleseed number of seeds that first year. And then I got my first client, second, third, and it really took off. But I kept telling myself in my in my darkest hour, and I'm wondering, holy crap, how much more money do I have to put on my credit card to support my family? I kept saying, how ridiculous would it be if I was to quit now after three months, after six yeah. months, after nine? Okay, I've been doing this 10 months. I know I'm going to turn the corner. I don't know when. I hope it's tomorrow. But if I was to quit now, how ridiculous would I look? And as I kept telling myself that. And it obviously paid off really well for you. And and as I said, you look back in hindsight and think, oh my goodness, what what if I had have given up? What a lost opportunity. Look at everything I've since created. But how did you know that you were on the right track? After 11 and a half months of burning money into your credit card, or as you say, using your line of credit, I like that. Yep. You really did read my book. Oh, I really did read your book. You know, burning your line of credit. How were you so sure that you were on the right track? What if your idea was just a bad idea? Well, first of all, I'll give you the two sides of the story. I'll give you the um, non-faith-based, and then I'll give you the faith-based. So when I went through unemployment, so first the faith-based, I went through unemployment, and then when I went through cancer, I mean, cancer is something that if you don't have faith, you get faith real quick. I mean, it's one of those things, my God, I want to live, and you start praying and, and things like that. And then... So the flip side of that is when I, when the doctor told me, Jim, I, I believe you to be cancer free, I felt such elation, but I also felt I'm still unemployed and what am I going to do? And I, over those uh, 60 days or so, when I was really struggling pre-operation and stuff like that, I really prayed like a madman. And, and after it was over, I prayed, but I didn't just pray and ask for a job, David. I prayed for guidance and wisdom. What am I supposed to do? And I, I believe God spoke to me and told me you should be an entrepreneur. And so I felt I really felt called to be an entrepreneur, number one. But the other, the non-faith-based, just more the intuitive businessman part of it said, 
I know newsletters work. Newsletters have been around for 100 years. There's not a business on the planet that can't benefit from being in touch with their customers on a more regular basis. So I knew I'd have a big pool of prospective customers. I just had to knock on enough doors to start getting business. And by the way, I knew I didn't need a thousand people at the height when I was doing multiple six figures before I I shifted gears. I had 23 clients and I was making a nice living. So I knew I didn't have to have a hundred. I just needed to have, you know, 25 or 30 good clients. And were you getting enough really positive signs along the way in those first 11 and a half months to help you stay on track to decide to survive? Well, I'd like to say I would, but you know, you get you get a lot of doors slammed in your face, not literally, but you know, when you're in sales, I mean, rejection is a big part of that. And I've studied sales for a long time. I know there's some things you hear, well, every no, you're one step closer to yes. What a bunch of crap when someone tells you no, you know, but it's true. And okay, it wasn't right for him. And what did I do? What could I change? How could I do different? The other thing I realized when I was doing these sales calls, because as I was getting into it, and I don't know if I'm in month seven, eight or nine, but I would, I was all, I would always leave early. I'd arrive early. I didn't want to be like frantic because I already felt pressure. And there was one time I arrived like a half an hour early and I'm thinking about the appointment and thinking if I can land this client, what a game changer it will be. And if I don't, holy crap, I got to borrow more money. And I thought, you know what? I am putting so much pressure on myself. I, I must look like a complete mess when I'm in there. And I really started getting in touch with, you know, kind of spirit and things like that. What I discovered through that whole process was that I really believe that the outcome of that sales call was already determined. All I had to do was go in there and do my best. If I didn't get the customer, it didn't mean I was a loser. It just meant that customer is not right for me. I got better go find another one. And I kind of removed the stigma of me being a loser who can't sell anything and just said, I've just knocked on the wrong door. But thankfully, I went through another sales call. I learned something. Okay, I won't say this. I won't say that. I'll, you know, I kept getting better. I'm really, really, really good at sales today. And probably a lot of that is due to the fact that for a year, I knocked on a hell of a lot of doors. That takes a lot of inner strength to do what you just described, because as you've already told us at the same time, you were amassing huge credit card debt and you had a family of four teenage kids to support. You know, what's interesting is that if you, let's say, David, you work, I don't know, it's funny when I hear people say, oh, I work a full 40 hours. Well, goodness, I can't tell you the last time I worked 40 hours. <laughs> you know, most people work, business owners work really hard. But let's say you work, whatever you work, it's the end of a, it's the end of a week and you're dog tired and you're ready to just go sit on the couch, vegetate, do whatever you want to do. And then you think to yourself, I should do this or I should make one more call. And you say, nah, I'm not going to do it. That's your decision to make. But I guarantee you that if a friend called up or a brother, sister, family member said, I really need help. My buddy backed out and we got to move my sofa this weekend or we got to do this. You would find the strength to help somebody else. What I believe is that people will dig deeper, they'll work harder, whatever it takes to help somebody else more than they will themselves, right? So if you believe that, and I do, what I started doing is I personalized my own particular challenges. So here I am at 14 age, my boys were, I think, 16 and 18 at the time. So they're, they're getting ready to move on. But my girls were pretty young and I knew they wanted to go to college. And I'm thinking, man, I have to grow this business. I need to knock on more doors. I need to go out and speak. I need to do a lot of these different things that I didn't really feel comfortable doing. Because if I say no for myself, if internally I say, well, it's okay if I only do, let's say 300,000, but I need to make a lot more than that if I'm going to be able to help my girls with college or help pay for weddings or, 
you know, God forbid I want to retire someday, (laughs) you know, when you can personalize the challenge, but personalize it in a way that you're more likely to do something for somebody else and then yourself, it gives you strength. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast. When you were pursuing this business dream, had you defined for yourself yet that dream business that you've, you've got a definition for now? I love the dot points. I'll, I'll read them for our listeners. This is your definition of what a dream business is. And I'm just interested to know how front of mind this was as you were building. A dream business continues to grow even during a terrible economy. It has multiple streams of revenue. It becomes an asset for worry-free retirement, is always firing on all cylinders, is fun to operate, provides the lifestyle you want, allows you to give back, and it can make your dreams come true. Was that front of mind, or are you in the luxurious position now of being able to draft that structure that you are successful and and have a lot of revenue streams? I was not that smart or forward thinking. (laughs) You know, what's interesting, and, and again, I spend a lot of money working with coaches. I mean, I've worked with some great mindset coaches to help me. I share a lot of that. You know, uh, Melanie Benson Strick is a big part of that book. She's my personal mindset coach. She's brilliant at helping you figure out different things. And one of the things I figured out quite after the fact, David, here's what's interesting. If you could have a goal, let's say your goal, and initially when you're starting out, people, oh, I want to get to six figures. That's like the first major milestone. And then you want to get to mid six figures, maybe whether that's 300, 500,000, then you can't wait to be a million dollar business. So there's these different milestones. What happens for a lot of people is what's next itis. So let's say you hit six figures and two years ago, you said, man, if I hit six figures, I'll, I'll stop working 90 hours. I'll only work 80. I'll be able to do this, that, and the other thing. Most people go, okay, pushing onward. Let, I want to hit a quarter million. Or you just work, 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 work. And so through some real good coaching and training, I learned to look at what was important to me. You know, I started to come up with the term dream business, but some you know, coach said, well, what's important? What's your dream business? I started naming those things because I know at, I just turned 58 yesterday. And I, you know, because of what I went through, we, we were really behind the eight ball, at least, you know, as far as what you read on retirement. So my business really had to crank to make up for lost time. I didn't want a business, David, that every Sunday night you're sitting on the couch, you know, watching TV or in the fall watching football and go, oh, crap, tomorrow's Monday morning. I didn't want that. I want a business that's fun to operate. So I only want to work with people that want to work with me. I want them to pay me a lot of money for my expertise. And that's part of the fun part. I want to work with people and support people and pay good team members more money than other people. So they stay with me a long time. That's part of the fun. I'll tell you some of the biggest growth that I've ever had has come in the last five years. And what, you know, in the States here would have to be called a crappy economy. We've been just horrible as far as our gross domestic product. And but yet I've been able to do well. So a dream business grows even when the general economy is not doing well. And you name some others there. But those were some of the things that I started actually naming once I thought about it. But I didn't have that five or six or eight years ago and say, this is what I'm working for. I looked at once I built my dream business, I identified why I thought it was my dream business. 
Yeah. So you reverse engineered it, but it is great advice because as you said, all of those things happen as you're building a business, you have these goals and as you hit them, you just keep on expanding the goals and sometimes in a way, forget why it is that you started your own business or became an entrepreneur in the first place. And largely it's about lifestyle and being able to set your own direction in the work that you do and, and to be able to focus in on, on doing those great things that you know you're good at, that you know have a value. You know what's interesting about mindset and success, and I'll, I'll share this with you. So I have wanted for 30 years to buy a boat. I've I had a boat. My family had boats when I was a kid, but then, you know, I was married young. We had kids. And so, you, you know, the boat takes a backseat to food and all the other stuff. I bet. And so then when the kids moved on, I said, man, I, I want to get a boat. I want to get a boat. And it, it was just this dream that I had and had and had. And I even thought if I get to this level of income or whatever, but then I had to have a really close confidant point out to me, Jim, all you do is talk about wanting your boat, but you are way past where you thought you needed to be to buy a boat. When are you going to buy your damn boat? Yeah. And then I looked at it. And so three years ago, I, as I call it, I scratched a 30 year itch and I bought a really killer boat, which is just amazing. And one thing announcement that we made as, as you and I are recording this a day after my birthday is my wife and I have decided now that, you know, we're, we've been empty nesters for a while, but we're going to actually sell our house and buy a really big boat and live aboard and be able to work aboard our boat for at least a year Wow! and travel between North and South. We're done with winners. And so those are the kind of things that you need to identify what your goals and dreams are. But the second thing you need to recognize when you get there, because if you're the type of person that's just constant head down, nose to the grindstone, work, 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 you know, Melanie calls it what's next itis. So Jim, you did this that, and the other thing. And I think, yeah, but I want to do the same other thing. She says, well, why don't you start to enjoy a little bit about what you've done? Because, you know, I, I having faced cancer, I have this hourglass on my desk and I always look at it and think the sand is running out. And, you know, I, the sand will run out eventually for everybody. That's one thing we all have in common. And you don't know when that is. So if you work yourself to the bone until you're 80 and then say, okay, now I'm going to have some fun. And then you die at 81. What good is that? Absolutely. And Melanie, you referred to there is your personal coach and, and you draw on quite a bit of her work through the book as well. I do. I asked her, I said, Melanie, if I'm okay sharing some of our personal sessions, plus I've interviewed her a number of times, can I use this in the book? She says, go for it. This is a really, this is probably the most important book that you'll do. Yeah. And it represents her work really well through your book as well. You're certainly not stealing it. It's certainly Melanie's work. And for the reader, it's, it's really obvious. And you can see as you tell your story about yourself and as a reader, you get to know your approach to business and life, you can see Melanie's impact on you. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we started out with a coaching relationship. We're very, very close friends. And um, she speaks at my events and I recommend people work with her. And, you know, I support her with branding and marketing, one of my fortes. And so it's a really good relationship. She actually, I mean, she actually teases me. She goes, you know, I should have been the co-author of that book. I said, I know, but it's my book. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jim, we can't go through every chapter of the book as much as I'd like to actually, but there's a couple of chapters I just want to highlight. And for the readers, all of your chapters are, they're labeled decide to or decide not to. And, and it sort of is a step-by-step building up of the mind process of a, of a successful entrepreneur. And one of the early chapters was decide not to be an imposter. And I really like this chapter because it touches what so many of us go through when we begin our own business. As you said in the book, you come from an organization often to start your own business. And in the organization, you have all the infrastructure and the, the services and everything that goes with being part of a business. And then you begin your own thing. And often it's from the spare bedroom at home or from the dining room table. 
And that can often have the psychological effect on someone of, hang on, I'm being a pretender here. I'm not real. This is just all make-believe, but of course it's not. And everyone's okay with the fact that that's how people start building a business. But as I said, it can have that psychological effect, can't it? It's really bad. Like, you know, the imposter syndrome is also referred to as the fraud syndrome. So, you know, what's really interesting is that it, that is a mindset that needs to be addressed because you will hold yourself back for fear of being pointed out. Now, that in reality, that will never happen. You know, when I learned this strategy of creating celebrity expertise for yourself, anointing yourself as the guru in a field. So, my, you know, my first business was that of newsletters. And so when I transitioned in 2005, 2006, I created the moniker, the newsletter guru. Mm-hmm. And I believed it was a good strategy. But I'll tell you what, when I went to my first major marketing event where you, you know, like 7,500 bucks, you invest in a booth and people come up and I had the newsletter guru up on the wall behind me and I kept waiting because I never, I never finished college. I never went to writing school or design school, self-taught, you know, just a, you know, I had a good marketing mind and I created a business, but I kept waiting for somebody to walk up and go, guru, who the hell made you the guru? <laughs> you know, I, did you tell me, I mean, I've read your books, man. You, you can't even spell. I mean, this is just some of the negative head trash. And what it does, David, is it it prevents people from putting themselves out there in a very big way. And I got to tell you, if you can't put yourself out there in a big way, you will be forever stunting the growth and limiting the amount of success that you have. You have to get over the imposter syndrome. That idea of the imposter syndrome, is that changing? Because it's really common now in the Australian economy, I'm sure in the American, in the US economy as well, for people to have their own business the idea of the entrepreneur is very well accepted. I didn't ever feel the need to hide the fact that I was working from home. In fact, I'm quite proud of the fact that I get to build my lifestyle around my work or the other way around. That has very much changed in the last 10 years, I believe, David, the power of the internet and things like that. It was starting to change when I started in 2001. But Again, like as you pointed out in the book, I was going to go, I always went to meetings in their office or we met in restaurants. Sometimes someone would say, hey, could, should I come to your office? I said, no, I'll meet you where you are. Or I'm not, you know, because I don't want to be at my house. Yeah. Because I, I did start, you know, my dining room. And then when, when I would go to the meeting and someone might ask, so where's your office? I would say, oh, I'm in Eagle, Pennsylvania. Oh, are you in Eagle View, which is like a corporate center? No, I'm across the road off Township Line Road. A lot of times that would stop it, but sometimes say, well, where exactly? I said, well, I have a home office. I'm off of, you know, Township Line Road. Oh, cool. And enough of that positive or at least non, get out of my office, you imposter, which never, ever, ever happened. But, you know, people have that head trash. And the other thing is, if you want to earn higher amounts of revenue or income, especially if you're a coach or guru, you have to be perceived as the smart guy or the smart gal on the hill. I mean, there's an expression in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. But if somebody's looking for help or somebody wants to hire somebody to help them grow their business or solve any kind of a problem, you have to be marketing yourself as the go-to person in that niche or in that industry, right? And so if you can't do that, you are what I call an also. You're just like everybody else. Like if you need an accountant, I don't know about like metro in the metropolitan area you live in, but if you were to Google or look in that antiquated thing called a phone book, if you looked up accountant, right, there could be 30 or 50 of them within a half an hour drive of your house. 
How do those accountants stand out so they're the one getting the phone call? It can't be because in their ad it says, we add numbers really, 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 really well. Okay, we're so good at adding. You know what I mean? That's not it. You have to stand for something. You have to coin yourself as maybe you're the accountant for home-based business owners. That's actually how I found my CPA. And, you know, I was introduced to a couple of CPAs, David, and, and, you know, some would say, well, we bring big business experience to small business owners. We work with everybody from Fortune 500 to small business owners. I didn't want that. I wanted a CPA who lives and breathes small business. I want somebody who knows home office deductions. I wanted somebody who knows what it's like to be a bootstrapping entrepreneur. That's who I wanted. I found it really interesting that you just going back to the answers that you used to give when you started your business, you would kind of avoid the question of where your, your office is by being a bit vague. Oh, it's about a mile away. Yep. Whereas I think we've established it, it's fine now. I'm I'm very confident just saying to people, look, I work from home. I, I've never had a problem with that. Maybe I'm lucky I've I've started my business in an era where it's much more acceptable. Whereas when you started it 10 years ago, it, it just, it was only on the cusp of that. That's true. And today, I mean, I, I, I've been doing weekly videos for six years Yeah. and many of my videos are shot in my home, in my backyard, in my home office. We're walking the dog by the lake, wherever it is. I am proud that I have a lifestyle business, but you know, that wasn't always that way. One of the other chapters that really caught my eye because it resonated so strongly was that the entrepreneur is always thinking about their business and you actually flipped that around and, and made me feel okay about that. I sometimes feel guilty when I leave my, my little home office and go and hang out with the family. It's still on my mind, but in a really positive way. It's not worry or, or anxiety. It's, it's ideas and things that I want to do. And you pointed out that that's one of the differences between being a, an entrepreneur and being an employee of a company. That As an entrepreneur, it's okay to be thinking about things because it's all positive and it's all- It's part of your DNA. Building great ideas. Yeah. And, you know, so when I started my first business, I remember because I had melanoma, that was the cancer I had. So if we go to the beach, I have to sit under a UV umbrella with UV clothing and I just sit there and read, right? Family goes out and has fun on the beach. But so before I started my business, I was always reading detective novels, CIA type conspiracy stuff. I just enjoyed it. I haven't read one of those in years, which is probably a little bit of a shame, but I love business books. I read tons and tons and tons of business books. So one time on vacation, I'm sitting under the umbrella and I'm pouring into some business book. My wife comes up and goes, hey, what do you read? And I said, you know, uh, how, to, how to write a sales letter. doesn't matter. And she goes, oh, reading business on vacation. I said, I am having the time of my life. <laughs> you know, it's just part of who you are. You don't turn when you own a business, you can't turn it off. But the thing about being a business owner is you don't work for vacation. You have a life and your business is part of that life. And if you're fortunate enough to have a dream business, that life provides you a lifestyle. I no longer work for vacations. I mean, I'm in a situation where we can have three or four day weekends all summer long if I wanted. We can spend it on our boat. So I don't like, oh, I can't wait to go on vacation. I totally enjoy my life right now. So that's a difference. And that was one of the points that again resonated with me. It's okay to be thinking about your business all the time because you're excited about the prospects. You're excited about your ideas. As long as you take advantage of the other side of that, and that is that your time is flexible. You don't have to go and sit at your desk at eight o'clock in the morning and not get up until five. You've built a business so that your lifestyle can fit around to it. So make the most of that, you know, cash that in. Absolutely. So some people might be wondering, well, how do you have three or four day weekends? So what I do, I primarily, most of my time is spent coaching my 
clients, my coaching clients, and doing interviews. Now, I have set up my calendar so I only so that when you go to schedule a call with me, the only days that are available are Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Monday and Friday are no call days. I call them it's my bookend schedule. So Monday and Friday bookend three very intense long days of calls, usually back to back. But what happens in the you know right now I'm in I live in uh, Pennsylvania where it's cold in the winter. In the winter I'm usually in my office working. I might be working on a book or doing something, but I know. I can focus on getting something done because I have no calls coming in or going out. But Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, it's usually one call back to back to back. So literally, what's interesting for me in the summer, David, is that when I'm on Thursday and I'm looking at my calendar, three more, two more, four, when I finish my last call, I know I can go to the boat and I won't have to talk to anybody for four days. (laughs) It's really cool. You are really cashing in on that lifestyle that you've created for yourself. Hey, uh, Jim, I, I've got a whole list of questions I want to ask you, but we're, we're going to run out of time. Before we, we do that, though, I want to talk about this five habits of successful entrepreneurs that you've put together. And I love this list, but it just each of these items are stuff that keeps coming back to us. Anyone who's wise, anyone who's got a little bit of wisdom to share about being effective, whether it's personally or professionally or as an entrepreneur, these elements just continue to come up. I'll run you through them one to five for the listeners. Number one is get up early. Number two is exercise. Number three is to feed your brain. Number four is to express gratitude and be thankful. And number five is to be bold. They're such great pieces of advice, Jim, aren't they? But they're so common, so hard to do. But as advice, that's something that we hear time and time again, isn't it? You know, the thing is, it is true in any in any country, in any population, community, uh, group of people, entrepreneurs, you look at any group at all, and especially in political times, you tend to hear this expression, the top 1%, right? We're in a political season here. Oh, the top 1%. The top 1% are people who are willing to do things that everybody else is not willing to do so they can have the success that they have. I mean, sure, if you point to 100 highly successful people. Did one or two of them have a silver spoon? Probably. Most of those people did unbelievable things like risking everything and just constantly investing in themselves and doing all these different things to grow more successful than other people. And so, yeah, when I say get up early, if someone tells me I just can't get my book done or I can't do this, I say, describe your day. Well, I rise about seven o'clock and blah, blah, blah. I said, what time do you leave work? Well, I like to leave work around six or seven. That's a good 12-hour day. I said, well, what do you do at night? Well, after I put the kids to bed, I like to watch a couple hours of TV. I said, well, shoot, two hours of TV? I mean, why can't you work on your book then? In other words, well, I like TV. Okay, well, then you like TV more than the success your book is going to bring you. Yeah, that's the choice you're making. It is. A, it's a choice. And so people who like to watch TV, that's totally fine. But there's always a way. And in the book, I describe what I call a 3 a.m. holy crap moment. And so if you're laying, if you're an entrepreneur, you're laying in bed, it's three o'clock in the morning, you're on your back, you're looking up, it's completely dark in your room, your eyes are open, and you're thinking to yourself, holy crap, I haven't had a new customer in like 90 days. Holy crap, how am I going to pay my rent? Holy crap, I own the business and I haven't paid myself in six months. Holy crap. There's a lot of holy crap moments we all face. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is there could be some things that need to be tweaked in your business model, maybe your marketing. But I guarantee you that when you have a holy crap moment, you need to get out of bed. You go into the bathroom, you look in the mirror and you point in a very angry fashion and say, 
Why are you continuing to hold me back? When are you going to do what you know needs doing so we can grow this business and get out of these holy crap moments? Because everything that I've described in this book, I guarantee if you read this book, you're going to resonate with at least 70 or 80% of it. And it might just give you the courage you need to step up and move to becoming part of the 1% group. Tell you what, Jim, I, I did read your book and I enjoyed it very much. As always, for my listeners, I'll put some links to your book on my website where when I publish this episode. But before I let you go, Jim, I've got four questions I want to ask you. They're really quick. Okay. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to. Is it a party with lots of people you know, or is it an intimate dinner with your closest friends? It's sitting on my boat in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay with my wife, looking out at the stars. Oh, Jim, that's a cop-out answer. I gave you a choice between two things. <laughs> oh, I had to pick the two. I didn't, I didn't understand yeah. the rules. Okay, I would rather have an intimate dinner. Right. Because I feel like, you know, so much of my life is in a big group. So I'd, I'd rather have intimate on a Saturday night. Okay, now you got it. All right, you got to choose between my two options. Okay. Okay, what about this? Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Well, geez. I, the, okay, I got to pick one of those two, huh? You do. Caught daydreaming. Right. Okay, I'm not surprised to hear that. I'm really interested about this one. Do you make decisions based on emotion? or through rational thought process? Well, rational thought process. All right. And what about this very last one? You're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotels, plan the route, know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? We get in the car and drive. And I can prove that that's not a phony answer. When we sell our house and buy the boat, we have no idea what we're going to do next. So I imagine we'll live on the boat for a year or so. I have no idea where we're going to live, if we're going to buy, if we're going to rent, what part of the country. We have no clue. We'll figure it out. Awesome. Jim Palmer, ultra successful entrepreneur, author of many books, including Decide, The Ultimate Success Trigger. David, before we go, can I give you a special URL? You have done, I have so enjoyed this interview. It's been all about the book Decide. My book Decide came out a year ago. We actually did a relaunch a couple months ago. I added two bonus chapters based on a lot of the feedback. I would love it if I could offer your listeners a free copy of the book. Oh, That's very kind of you. Actual paperback, not a digital download. The only thing I would ask is that that they will cover the shipping and handling, which is $6.95. And if you've got a large audience in in Australia or wherever, it's still $6.95. That's very kind of you, Jim. So I want to give you a special URL because if you go to Amazon, you're going to pay $25 or more for the book. So... But if you go to Decide for Success Book, Decide, F-O-R, SuccessBook.com, you can get a free copy of the book mailed out to you within two business days, I believe, for six ninety five, which will cover the shipping and handling. Fantastic. I will, of course, put that link on my website. That's a very generous offer, Jim. I appreciate that. This book will change lives. I hope people take advantage of it. Oh, look, it, it really will. It, it's As I said, it, it's a fantastic read, and I felt as though you were talking directly to me. So you know that's a good book when that happens. Look, Jim, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. I don't know whether I enjoyed reading your book more or our conversation more. They've both been terrific. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, David. Thanks again for having me. And that was Jim Palmer. If you're an entrepreneur, a wantrepreneur, or a sidetrepreneur, I strongly recommend you take Jim up on his offer. 
It really is a terrific read. And as I said in the interview, I felt like he was talking directly to me. Jim doesn't pull any punches in his book. He tells it the way it is. But his immense experience in building businesses, the fact that he's been at every stage from dreaming to worrying to enjoying enormous success shines through every page of advice. I'll put a link to where you can claim your free book on the Lessons Learned page of this podcast. And it's there where, as always, I'll share the lessons I took from today's chat. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. You're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn or email me directly, david at teams.guru. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'll be back next week for another episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.